Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, ladies and gentlemen, his real name is Guy Man Dude, but I call him the Captain. What's happening? It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Psychokinesis by the bright and brilliant minds over at Grim Artisan Ales. Garage grade, let's go with three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. I love Grim Ales and they make so many great beers, it was hard to choose one. So expect to see them featured again. But this week it is Psychokinesis, which is a dry hopped and tart wild ale with notes of tropical fruits. And this week's beer was brought to the garage by these bright and brilliant minds. First up, we have Kimberly in Phoenix, Arizona. And a big shout out to Paul in New Orleans. Let's go to the great state of Texas and say hello to Natalie in San Antonio. Hello. And then here's a cheers to Mila in Wilmington, North Carolina. And a big we like your jib to Aaron from Windsor, Colorado. And last but not least, a shout out to Sarah, New Paltz, New York. So thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help us out with next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com. Click on the donate button. While you're there, check out our blog. You can click on the different cases. There's discussions going on on there. There's a lot of the great listeners providing some great theories and information on these cases as well. And make sure you check out the store page this week. We have two new logo shirts that are going to be in the store this week. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
This is a true story about absolute madness and how a paranoid schizophrenic serial bomber used gunpowder and homemade explosives to bring chaos and fear to New York. The following is an excerpt from the book Incendiary by Michael Connell. The NYPD certainly didn't understand it. The famously tough-minded New York detectives stumbled and fumbled as a harassing band of newspaper reporters detailed at every turn. For more than a century, the police had relied on muscle and shoe leather to collar bad guys. The street corner respected the billy club, and that was that. But reliable strong-arm methods proved useless in the face of a schizophrenic serial bomber. Seldom in the history of New York, wrote the Associated Press, has a case proved such torment to police. The bomber's rampage came at a time when science was transforming the way Americans thought about the world around them. Jonas Salk came up with the polio vaccine, eradicating a disease that crippled hundreds of thousands. Bell Labs paved the way for modern electronics and all that came with it by inventing the silicon transistor. Physicist Edward Teller created the hydrogen bomb. Scientific advancements, however, did not elevate policing, at least not in New York. The NYPD's corrupt precinct captains and stubborn commanders resisted new methods promoted by college-educated criminologists until a serial bomber forced them to adapt. On September 5th, 1931, a 27-year-old mechanic is working at a consolidated Edison generating plant in New York City. While this man is going about his business, a large boiler near him misses ignition. Fumes start to collect, building and building, and then ignition occurs, followed by a sudden explosion. The blast lifts the young man and throws him to the floor. There is a large discharge, and a black cloud shoots from the boiler, releasing a dark fog of hot gases. The man is unable to get up. He lies there helplessly, surrounded by the heat and the gases as the black cloud consumes him. The hot gases and fumes begin to fill his lungs, choking him. Not only can he not breathe, but his lungs and throat feel as though if they are on fire. Lit from within, the flames growing, the heat rising, and the pain is unbearable. The man thought surely the blast has killed him and now he is burning in hell. Finally, the young man comes to and he sees what he thinks to be angels cutting through the fog and coming to his aid. The man was rushed to the hospital and though he was severely injured, he would survive and recover, although not completely, because the accident left him disabled. And after collecting 26 weeks of sick pay, the man was fired from his job because he was no longer physically able to perform his job duties. The accident had led to pneumonia that in turn developed into tuberculosis. He filed a worker's compensation claim, but it was denied because he waited too long to file it. 
He appealed the denial of the compensation three times, but each time it was rejected. Nine years later, on November 16, 1940, a worker at the Consolidated Edison Power Plant located at 170 Street Number on the busy West 64th Street in Manhattan found a wooden toolbox sitting unattended on a windowsill. Thinking someone had forgotten their tools, the worker decided to inspect the wooden toolbox. Inside, there were no tools, but what was found caused the worker to panic and the NYPD were notified. The item and the toolbox were successfully located and removed and no one was hurt. The police had found what was described as a crude pipe bomb. It was a short length of brass pipe filled with gunpowder with an ignition mechanism made of sugar and flashlight batteries. It was a dud. It never exploded. The bomb was wrapped in a note written in a distinctive block lettering. The note stating, Con Edison Crooks, this is for you. And it was signed F period P period. Well, this first bomb is kind of interesting because it's wrapped in a note. So a lot of people believe that this bomb was meant to be a dud because why would you wrap it in a note that you want people to read and right. then have the bomb blow up and then destroy the note? Yeah, that's the, the investigators looking into the matter. That was their thought, you know, because the note would have been obliterated by the explosion. Uh, bringing up the obvious possibility that the intention of the bomb and its maker was to threaten someone or maybe even everyone at this Con Edison location, not actually to injure or kill. Right. Had the intent been to injure or kill, the maker would have made sure the bomb would have exploded and then sent a letter later claiming responsibility for this action. In September of 1941, a pipe bomb was found lying in the street near Four Irving Place. Uh, this is in New York City. There were no casualties in this event either. The bomb had been dropped without the fuse being lit. The bomb... It had similar construction to the one found at Con Edison in November. And it, this was found inside of an old sock. There was no note with this bomb, however. Yeah, it was a wool sock. And police theorized that the bomber might have spotted a police officer or for some reason got scared and dropped the bomb out of fear without setting its fuse. Uh, if this were true, it is likely that the bomb was not dropped near its intended target now here's an interesting thing captain the bombs they did scare some of the consolidated edison employees and some of the people who would walk and travel near irving place right but there were much more scarier events going on around the world world war ii was well underway and many countries joining forces with others taking sides and the loss of life due to war would never be greater in December of 1941, Japan attacked the United States and European colonies in the Pacific Ocean. The United States joined the war, and shortly after, the police received a letter. The source cited here says the letter was all in block capital letters. Now, I've seen photos of this letter, and it actually appears to me to be letters cut from possibly newspapers and or magazines. Yeah, this is the stereotypical you know, serial killer, serial bomber, you know, clipping uh, letters that they, that you'd see in all the old time 
uh, movies. Yeah, and regardless of how this letter was constructed, it, it read as follows. I will make no more bomb units for the duration of the war. My patriotic feelings have made me decide this. Later, I will bring the Con Edison to justice. They will pay for their dastardly deeds. Signed, FP. Hmm. So he... So we have one bomb planted, one bomb accidentally planted, neither bomb go off, and then we get a letter because this guy's so patriotic that he's just not going to bomb during the war. During the course of the war, yeah. And true to his words, uh, true to the bomber's words, there were no bombs that showed up during the course of the war, and in fact, for five years after that. Was it? Well, yeah, but it's also a long war. I wonder... I wonder if every year the guy just kind of sat around going, damn war, still going on. Well, instead. Can't start my bombing until the war's over. He didn't stay silent because instead he sent crank letters, threatening letters, and postcards to uh, police stations, newspapers, movie theaters, to private citizens, and to the Consolidated Edison Power Company, all signed from this FP. Yeah, uh, but I mean, at. At that point, what this is not much of a threat. Well, we will never know the grand total number of of the amount of correspondence the FP sent and where they all went. But what has been reported was that there were at least 16 of these types of letters or cards that were sent during the course of this. Uh, what I'm calling is wartime means peacetime for this bomber. Now, investigators studying the penciled, blocked, lettered messages, and they noted that the letters G and Y had a very odd shape to them. They believe that this is possibly indicating that FP had some type of European education. And I would assume that they would actually think that this guy might have been military or, or something like that uh, because he is not bombing during wartime. Yeah, there was some consideration to that, that possibly he was gone during this time. I wanted to find out more specifically when these 16 threatening letters or postcards were sent and received, because if he was off at war, you know what I mean? Like, was he, were these not received for five years? The only information I could find was during this time that no bombs were sent, there was still threatening letters and cards that were sent. Right. I couldn't find dates to go with those threatening uh, messages that he was sending. But it was on 19 in 1951 on March 29th, shortly after 5 PM, a hand grenade sized pipe bomb exploded in the landmark grand central terminal at New York city. The bomb had been dropped into an ashtray, you know, one of those standing ashtrays with like the sand in it. Yeah. We, we don't really have too many of those anymore. This would have, this ashtray was located near the grand central oyster bar and restaurant on the terminals, lower level. Mm -hmm. As said, the bomb did explode. This startled passengers, but thankfully no one was killed and no one was injured. Police dismissed this event as the work of quote, boys or pranksters. The New York times reported the event in the following day's issue, though only with a three paragraph brief at the bottom of page 24. Ordinarily the detonation of a pipe bomb in a busy commuter terminal right. at rush hour would, would be cause for grave public concern. Yet the local news immediately, uh, and barely acknowledged this 
event. Well, it seemed like they're trying to brush it off because one, nobody was hurt. And then the explosion wasn't uh, huge. It didn't cause a lot of damage. And I think the police stating that this is boys or pranksters really kind of quiets down the alarm there. Right. I mean, you're not going to report on the front page that a a local deli was egged by a bunch of (laughs) high schoolers. Right. Weeks later in April, another small bomb exploded inside a phone booth. This time it was in the basement of the New York Public Library. A security guard on watch was leaning against the phone booth when it exploded. Luckily, he was somehow able to escape with his life. Uh, The explosion nearly destroyed the phone booth, but no one, including the security guard, was injured. During the investigation, the NYPD bomb squad found fragments very similar to the bomb at Grand Central. Both were short lengths of well-machined pipe with with a threaded cap at each end. Inside the pipe was... 25 caliber a 25 caliber shell and explosive gunpowder packed with nuts and bolts yeah while police believe this could be connected to the grand central bomb just weeks prior they still kind of chalk this up to some boys or pranksters yeah but here's where i have an issue with that because this one we have a phone booth and we remember what old-time phone booths look like this phone booth was destroyed so if somebody would have been inside the phone booth, uh, this person could be seriously hurt or, or even killed. And the other fact, though, too, Captain, is these are probably, we know Grand Central's a well-traveled area. I yeah. would imagine the New York Public Library would have, at most times of the day, have lots of people in there. This is These are dangerous spots to be putting these explosives. Mm-hmm. Now, police failed to make the connection to the bombs that were back from 1941. And this, you know, because there's a huge, yeah, big gap. Rightfully so. It was like 10 years ago. And, you know, but but however, during the 10 years when the mad bomber was inactive, remember, we said menacing letters were sent. One of those did warn that a bomb would be placed at Grand Central Station. I don't remember the exact wording, but it was a warning regarding that there would be an explosion at Grand Central. Yeah. In August of 51, the NYPD bomb squad combed through the rubble of another phone booth and found fragments of yet another pipe bomb of the now familiar design. This phone booth explosion was once again at Grand Central. In this attack, no one was killed nor injured. The police reported that they believed this to be the result of a sh- of sheer luck rather than a you know plan of the bomber. Right. In the investigation, police noted in their report that the latest bomb showed quote considerable advancement in technique. Now, police without a public threat or letter from the bomber, the investigators had no notion of the perpetrators or the nature uh, of of the motive behind the attack. Well, it seems like the bomber was, you know, he's kind of DIY guy, you know? So he went down to the home Depot and he uh, took a weekend class on how to make bombs. So he seems like he upped his game on this one. Yeah. And then he gets a wool sock that he no longer wants and puts it in the, puts the bomb in the wool sock and carries it off to wherever the, the did they target find a, is. Did they find a wool sock in any of these ones? That I'm uncertain of, Captain. I know that the wool sock would be 
a common thing that they would find from time to time uh, regarding these bombs. But in these specific ones, I don't know. We have to keep in mind, though, the first time that a wool sock was found was in a contained a bomb that didn't explode. Right. These last these last ones exploded. You, yeah. you you might not find any fragments of something as flammable or easy to destroy as a wool sock. Well, and it, at this point, like you said, they're not really connecting the dots of the the two previous bombs, mm-hmm. and that and then also the Mad Bomber and all his threats. They're not connecting those dots there. But one has to wonder with these last. Well, I guess it'd be three, right? We have one at the Grand Central Station, then we have one back at the library, and then we have one back at Grand Central Station, right? So one would have to wonder, okay, are we just getting lucky here and nobody's getting hurt, or like you were saying, or is this uh, a plan from the bomber? Like, hey, I'm showing you that I can hurt people, but I'm not going to, and, and, and then what does the bomber want? Well, and I doing these actions, and I think, I think here with these latest bombs, what my opinion would be is the same as NYPD, where they're saying, "Look, this was just sheer luck that nobody was injured because the placement of these bombs and the fact that they did go off, they were in such a public area that you would assume the intent was to harm or kill." Right, but it seems like these bombs are also. If they go off, they're going to hurt people in a radius that's pretty small. Yeah. A couple feet where you think if this this bomber was more sophisticated or their intent was to hurt a lot of people. They're, I mean, the placement of the bombs, they're doing a good job as far as they're being able to go into a, pu- a very public place, um, place a bl- bomb somewhere. And leave without being noticed. And then Right. And then have the bomb go off. Now, if you really wanted to hurt people um, on on a grand level to make some kind of statement, then you would think that the bomb would be a a bigger bomb, I guess. Well, and to paint a better picture for the listeners, I I think everybody should think of a hand grenade. You know, these were very small pipe bombs, uh, almost the size of a hand grenade. And you should expect the about the same size of explosion as you would with a hand grenade. Now, keep in mind when we see on TV and on in the movies is a dramatization of what a hand grenade explosion looks like. The super deadly thing or harmful thing here is one of the bombs that did not explode, they said was packed with nuts and bolts, sending these items flying through the air and potentially into people as they pass by yeah i'm no john rambo but when i was a kid like you would pretend that you had the grenade and you throw it into that 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 room you know and then the whole room would blow up mm-hmm. but but that's not the case with grenades oh you've put me on the spot captain i i'm no expert in grenades but my from my understanding with these particular bombs right you know so what i think you're describing is if you threw a grenade into this garage, like if you were like uh, some some army guy and you're trying to infiltrate this some arm, com, um, this garage and you're worried about the threat level in this garage, you would kick in the door, mm-hmm. you would throw the grenade inside and assume that the grenade would blow up and kind of incinerate everybody inside this small garage that we're sitting in. And I think with... That may or may not be the case. I've never thrown a grenade. I've dreamt about it many times. 
but these these little pipe bombs mm-hmm. uh they're only about a five inch piece of of pipe maybe six inches at the most but often described as what one would expect to see with a grenade type explosion well you think that grenade technology would advance throughout the years too so what a grenade was capable of and the 50s is probably way different than what it's capable of now. Well, and I think the phone booth gives us a really good idea of what type of explosion to expect, meaning that, I don't know, how many phone booths do you think you could fit in this garage, and yet the the pipe bomb only blew up that little phone booth. You know, a phone booth is considerably smaller than a room. Yeah, and anytime I hear grenades, I just think, you know, cabs are here. <laughs> well, back to the uh, the August 51 bomb, the one that exploded at Grand Central Station. Um, like the police said, they, they didn't really have an idea of who the perpetrator was or the motive behind the attack because there was no letter found or letter sent to describe or claim responsibility for this attack. But right. as our listeners know, with each new attack, not only do you have an increased threat level, but you also have the preponderance of evidence against the offender or at least to deduce who they are. So with each new attack, you should have one, if not both of the following, either a new clue or clues and or the same clue repeated, adding to the significance of that clue, meaning maybe you found something at a previous crime scene and let's say that item falls into the category of well, maybe this is evidence or maybe it is not. Right. But if you have multiple crime scenes and you find a similar item, well, then this most likely has to fall into this is evidence category. So at some of these bomb sites, among the scattered debris of pipe fragments, shell casings, plaster, glass, nuts, and bolts, police found a partially consumed throat lozenge. Now, of course, finding a used cough drop in a public place with a lot of foot traffic may seem like just a coincidence, but all of these lozenges were in close proximity to the bombs, and they were all of the same brand. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. 
Head to Factormeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 and use code TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code TrueCrimeGarage50 at Factormeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, me mateys. Cheers to you, Captain. There we go. Yeah. I cheers you back, but I didn't even have my beer open yet. Cheers. <laughs> you just thought, it was kind of a fake, kind of limped in with that one, huh? That's when you're the designated driver <laughs> and everybody goes, cheers, and you just kind of <laughs> hold up your hand. In August of 1951, employees at the Consolidated Edison Company They arrived at work to find that a phone booth in the lobby of their business of the main office had exploded. So this happened overnight. Now, no one was in the lobby during the explosion. So, of course, no one was hurt. The person actually in the building at the only person actually at all in the building was a security guard at nighttime. Now, for safety precautions, the building was evacuated and a thorough search was conducted. NYPD insisted that the building remain empty. This would be for several days. When they were able to return, employees in the mailroom received a suspicious package, and this was in a manila envelope, and inside, a short pipe bomb with caps on both ends. The letter was addressed to the company's personnel director. This is Edwin Jennings. Yeah, and the employees are going to evacuate the building. They're going to call in the bomb scare. The bomb squad arrived on the scene. The pipe was slowly but safely removed from the premises. Upon investigation, they discovered it was in fact a pipe bomb, and the worksmanship and the materials used both suggested it was from the serial bomber. Its triggering mechanism was based on a 25 caliber bullet, same as the earlier bombs found in 1951 around New York, and inside the pipe was a throat lozenge. Hmm. Police dusted the pipe. They dusted the envelope and the stamps for fingerprints, but found only smudges, nothing of use. Well, this also shows the time period, too, because if it was today, we'd find the throat lozenge and we'd run DNA and this would be solved. Yeah. If, if it were partially, uh, used. Right. Um, but regardless, the, the envelope could yield clues about the bomber. A postmark was from white plains, New York. A return address was from Lehman and Lehman, which was a fictionary entity. Right. An address. I used to work for him. <laughs> You were the the company president. That's how I became the captain. An address written by hand was in all caps, providing police with a handwriting sample. Then on October 22nd, the New York Herald Tribune received a letter in penciled block letters stating, Bombs will continue until Consolidated Edison Company is brought to justice for their dastardly acts against me. I have exhausted all other means. I intend with bombs to cause others to cry out for justice for me. If I don't get justice, I will continue, but with bigger bombs. All right. Dastardly deed. 
right? Dastardly mm-hmm. deed. That's what he keeps saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you hear that, what's the first thing that comes to your your brain? Comic books. Yeah, me too. I, I think uh, Batman. I felt like this is yeah, like would... something that like a criminal and in the early Batman with Adam West would say like, oh, I'm going to get you Batman for your dastardly deeds. Well, and I was going, yeah, I was going to be a little more specific with that, but I couldn't really place, you know, when I kept digging into this case and I kept hearing this over and over again, dastardly deeds, I couldn't put my finger on which one I would claim that to be from, but that seems very, it seems very 1930s in a way too, like Mm -hmm. comic booky 1930s. I'm going to get you for the, you know, the dastardly deeds, the, the letter also listed two targets, one directed police to the Paramount Theater, which is in the very busy Times Square district. There, a live bomb was discovered hidden inside of an old wool sock and left in the men's restroom. Luckily, the bomb was located in time and it was disabled. The other target was a telephone booth at Pennsylvania Station. There, nothing was found, either... Either the bomber was unable to deliver on the threat or he wanted to send the police on a wild goose chase. Back to the bomber's letters. So detectives made a surprising realization. The first Grand Central device in March of 1951 was not the first. And the evidence archives of the New York City police housed in a dusty box dating from before the war there was another note written by the same handwriting in the same strange block letters and signed FP. So detectives started working under the premise that this serial bomber may be seeking revenge. And one of those, the more common threats was to consolidated Edison. So possibly an angry customer or disgruntled former employee. Yeah. Detectives teamed up with con ed management. That's what they call them there for short con ed and provided a sample of the bombers handwriting, asking the company to rummage through its employee archives, seeking, you know, a problematic ex employee with handwriting resembling the unusual letter forms or somebody with the initials FP or possibly both. Right. Right. Uh, considering the thousands of people that the large utility company had employed over the years, reviewing these files would be quite the task. They compared the handwriting sample with old employee applications and tax forms. So this was a very tedious process. uh, But what happened was it actually produced a single person, uh, a man who was a former employee. He this man was once fired from Consolidated Edison Company for theft. And now, at this time in the case, he was the prime suspect in the serial bombing case. Yeah. This man's name is Frederick Eberhardt. Hmm. So, he, well, we got the F part. Yeah. He was a 56-year-old cable splicer who had worked for Con Ed until they fired him in 1948. Um, what was he caught stealing? I don't know what he was caught stealing, but not only was he fired for theft, but the police had arrested Eberhardt for that crime, for the theft. Mm. It went to trial 
uh, but what he was acquitted. Then Eberhardt in turn filed a lawsuit against Con Edison for $75,000. At this time. Which back then, that would have been a lot of money. Oh, he would probably not have to work again. Yeah. Uh, at this time, the lawsuit that he was seeking against Consolidated Edison was still unresolved, but police noted as a cable splicer, he presumably had the mechanical means to build these crude bombs. Right. And as a disgruntled employee, he had a motive and the strange block handwriting was spot on. It, It matched his handwriting on Monday, November 5th. Police went to Frederick Eberhard's home in Connecticut. Police accused him of sending the bombs and threatening letters, and they arrested him. The interrogation process, well, it did not bring a confession nor provide the police with any additional evidence against Eberhard. Eberhard was charged with sending threatening materials through the mail. Now, the following Wednesday, a disheveled Eberhard stood handcuffed in court as the state district attorney explained to the judge and quote, this defendant is a particular source of annoyance to the New York city police. We are firmly convinced that he is not of sound mind. He has been sending simulated bombs around the city. The past few months, hundreds of police have been called out at all hours of the day and night to investigate because of his actions. The judge ruled that Eberhard be sent to the psychiatric portion of Bellevue Hospital for evaluation. Eberhard's wife, Louise, insisted that the police had the wrong man. Several months later, the case was actually dismissed in court after Eberhard's lawyer argued successfully that the package that they actually arrested him for, the the latest package, right? it was not so he's being charged with sending threatening items through the mail. Yeah. The problem with that charge is the bomb doesn't explode. It was actually, I believe deemed that it could not physically explode. So there is no threat with the actual bomb. And furthermore, in that particular incident, there was no threatening note sent along with the bomb or later claiming responsibility. So therefore, uh, the, the arrest charge of sending threatening materials through the mail, well, there was nothing actually threatening about it deemed by this judge. The, the lawyer argued that successfully. So this, this guy is charged with it, but then it's ultimately just dismissed and thrown out of court. On November 28th, a bomb went off at the 14th Street subway station. The serial bomber had rented a coin-operated locker at the IRT 14th Street subway station. There, the bomber placed one of his small signature pipe bombs. The bomb exploded, destroying several lockers and adding much damage to the immediate area. No one was injured. Now, if this latest bomb didn't indicate to NYPD that they had the wrong man when they arrested Eberhard, well, then a note sent at the end of 1951 certainly would. And this note read, have you noticed the bombs in your city? If you are worried, I am sorry. And also if anyone is injured, but it cannot be helped for justice will be served. I am not well, 
And for this, I will make the Con Edison sorry. Yes, they will regret their dastardly deeds. I will bring them before the bar of justice. Public opinion will condemn them. For beware, I will place more units under theater seats in the near future. Signed, FP. So even though there's not there's not these huge explosions and a lot of people being injured, this is costing the city a lot of money. Yeah, and the thing we have to understand here is, much like today, the bomb squad is a very specific unit. And even though, even in a city as large as New York, keep in mind this is the, most of these bombs were in 1951. And so these men are getting called out at all hours of the night. There's not like, it's not like you constantly have a whole team of, of bomb squad. They're actually called bomb squad detectives back then right. uh, on duty 24 seven around the clock. And if you, if anybody reads up on this case or, or looks on the internet into this case, there's some fascinating pictures of the technology at the time. The the way that they removed these bombs with toothpicks. Well, it's it's actually very strange looking. It looks like from the black and white pictures, it almost looks like the bomb squad detectives are wearing um, almost like a, a a wicker material or some kind of basket over their head. When really it's a. <laughs> have right. you seen these? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and and actually the bomb squad vehicle that they removed the bomb in also looks like it's this giant basket when really what it is, is it's threaded steel, I believe, or some type of metal. So they're actually wearing, it's like man in the iron mask. Picture that they're wearing like a helmet, this metal helmet that almost looks somewhat like a basket. It's got tiny little slits for the eyes so that they can get close to these bombs and either diffuse them or remove them. And they also wear these vests and these are like, I'm guessing they're like ironclad type vests so that if it were to go off that those items like the nuts and bolts that we talked about inside the pipe, that when they explode, that they would, they would be either caught or unable to penetrate and bounce off of this metal vest that they wear. And I could only imagine captain the weight, the weight of that, that kind of steel helmet basically in that steel or, ironclad vest that they're wearing. Often what you would see these detectives do is they would get close and they would approach this bomb. You have to, can you imagine the amount of bravery it would take for an individual to get, to walk right up to a bomb, especially after we've had some go off and they're starting to look the same. You're, you've gotten to a point now in 1951 that you've had about a dozen bombs and about half of them have gone off. And So now you know that the threat level is certainly there and to have the bravery to approach this thing and pick it up and remove it because most of the time they've removed it. They, it's not like, right. It's not like mission impossible where you see Tom Cruise zip line in and, and take the thing apart and decide which wire to cut. It's these two detectives picking, physically picking up this bomb, disrupting it, sitting there, which could in fact make it go off in your hand. They would place it in some type of bag, purse, or or basket type thing, Mm -hmm. and they would place this thing in the center of a bar, like a long bar, so that you could put one, you could hoist one 
end of the bar up over your shoulder and I could hoist one up over my shoulder and we could walk it out of there to the vehicle, to that ironclad vehicle to remove this thing from the area, keeping everyone else safe, but in turn, putting ourselves very much in harm's way. The purpose of the bar that we place the thing on the bar is so at the very least, if this thing goes off, if this bomb explodes while we are transporting it to the vehicle, at least you and I are two and a half, three and a half feet from the thing when it, when it explodes. Well, and you get this jack wagon that is sending bombs so often now that you, now you have to put yourself in this situation over and over again. And then some of these bombs aren't going off. So you wonder if that, like, you know, you're in a job that you shouldn't ever let your guard down. Mm -hmm. But this, you know, jack wagon is, you know, uh, putting out bombs that aren't blowing up. So then, uh, yeah, it'd be a whole mental um, game that wouldn't be fun in that job. Well, so roughly here, Captain, we have about a 10 year uh, or more time span. And through that course of time, we have at least uh, 16 to 20 threatening letters that are sent out and received but we also have about a dozen bombs over the course of that time, right. probably about half of them going off, actually exploding. The, the strange mental thing here is that we have in that letter at the end of 1951 that is sent. It says if anyone was injured, I, he, he's apologizing. The, the bomber is apologizing. Should anyone be injured or if anyone is worried? I think that's a little telling about what we might be dealing with here in as to whom might be sending these bombs. It doesn't help you zero in on anyone, but it puts you in their mindset in a sense that we have half the bombs didn't go off. One wasn't even lit because he was probably scared when he got spotted by police or somebody caught on to what he was doing and the bomb was dropped without even being lit. Right Now, some of the, the bombs that did go off, think about where those ones were placed. Most of them were inside a phone booth and the one was inside of a, a trash can or um, ashtray that's kind of shaped like a trash can. Right, right. But the thing, my thought there that I immediately go to is even though you're creating this thing that's supposed to harm and hurt people to sure. get your, your revenge message across about these yeah, Con yeah. Edison dastardly deeds. You're not really trying to hurt anybody. You're almost containing your own bomb, aren't you? By putting it in a phone booth to, to, to the extent that maybe it only, it, it only hurts the person that went into the phone booth. Well, or, right. And the contradicting part though of that is he's also putting bombs in very heavily trafficked areas and very popular areas. And I think maybe with like the train station, not so much of the library, but especially with the train station, and theaters and stuff like that. Maybe it's some idea that also that we have uh, travelers, people coming in from the area. Maybe that if we have bombs going off, that the police are going to take this a little more serious. Mm -hmm. um, but so it's it's very weird because it like contradicts. It's it, you know he almost contradicts himself. Like, well, I'm going to put this bomb in a heavily trafficked area, but I'm going to place it in such a way that it possibly won't hurt anybody. Well, the, the, to give to paint a better picture of what these bombs are. Okay. So these bombs were all filled with gunpowder. They were pipe bombs filled with gunpowder. They ranged in size from four to 10 inches in length to half an inch to two inches in diameter. Now, most of these bombs 
that used timers were constructed from flashlight batteries or cheap pocket watches. And we know on at least one occasion that a wool sock was used to transport the bomb. The other thing here too, Captain, that you pointed out earlier was that in 1951, when the mad bomber reappeared, you know, he said, I'm going to take off this time due to the war. When he reappeared, the long hiatus since the last bomb, this, and mind you, at the same time, they've discovered that the, the construction techniques of the new bombs found in 1951 had improved. Right. So, well, obviously, I mean, there was time, there was a time gap. Yeah. Right. So you'd think that like it, it would improve, like, I mean, wouldn't you just assume it would, it would improve on some level technology and materials that they could use? Well, I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about 10 years, not a great length of time. What I, I mean by that could be a lot, that's quite a bit of time as far as like no, technology is concerned. What, what, no, but I'm going off of what investigators are concerned with. Right, investigators right. are specifically saying not the materials used. They're talking about the long hiatus since the last bomb, plus the improved construction techniques right. of the bomb is what led investigators to believe that the bomber had served in the military. If you want to take our new show off the record for a test drive, do what just just what the captain said. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash true crime garage and use the promo code garage and you'll get a free month of listening. All right, we'll see you back in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.